you're using the uh, Bibles, the church Bibles, uh, you'll find it starts on page 1178, 1178. It's headed, Paul opposes Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. just say again what a joy it is to be with you this morning and what a joy it is to have been given this passage about an argument in the early church. Thanks, thanks Steve. An argument over food. I mean already this morning we've had Hobnob Gate. I realise these are very live issues for us in the building here this morning. What is, what is this passage from Galatians chapter 2 all about 
Yes, it's all about this argument in the city of Antioch. It's this argument between these two great luminaries of the early church, this argument between the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. What's this, what's this row over? So some, some people, some men have come from Jerusalem, from the apostle James, and he's sent them out to Peter And they have convinced Peter to stop eating with Gentile Christians. Not just hobnobs, but everything else as well. No more eating with Gentile Christians. Instead, he must revert to keeping Jewish practices, keeping the Jewish food laws. And this this is what has so angered Paul... This has so angered Paul that he has set straight out for this city to go and confront Peter with everything that he is doing to show him the error of his ways. And as far as we know, um, at the end of that argument, Peter saw that what he was doing was wrong and reverted to eating again with Gentiles. Well, there we go. Lovely. What a nice story for us this morning, this Sunday to deal with. What does this matter? What difference does this argument that took place 2,000 years ago really, what, what difference does it make to you and me sitting here today as God's people in this place? Well, let's discover why, shall we? This morning, no expense spared, I'm going to take us all on a trip this morning, okay? We're going to visit a parallel universe this morning, Okay? Blown the budget, we're going to go to a parallel universe. And in this universe, it was Peter and not Paul who won the day 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years ago, rather than Paul being the one who wins the argument at the end of the day, instead Peter doubles down on what he is doing. He is absolutely convinced that he has been right in what he was doing. He should carry on not eating with Gentiles anymore. And this has been the argument that has won the day. What if at the end, after a massive row, Paul had to back down? And now in this universe, it's 2023, and we're gathered in Osset together as God's people. Let's just take a little look around, shall we, and see what is different in Osset in this parallel universe in 2023. Well, the first thing that we notice as we come to gather to worship is that the church is just smaller. And primarily, the people who are gathered here are Jewish by background. Is that going to leave too many people sitting in the room? Well, primarily, Jewish by background. Now, there are, you'll, you'll be pleased to know, a few Gentiles here. And you can identify who the Gentiles are because they're the ones who are really trying to look much more Jewish than everybody else, okay? They've had to prove that they are really, really committed to this, to living a, a good and a holy life as defined by keeping the old Testament laws. The meeting begins, and there is, there is some worship, but probably there's a lot less of it. Throughout the morning, 
you hear Jesus mentioned, venerated even, but actually what you start to notice is that Jesus just really is not the main focus as you gather together here. Instead, much of the meeting is given over to talking about what's of real concern, and what's of real concern is purity. That's what you're here to talk about. You're talking about what is purity? Why does God want it? How do we gain it? And even more importantly, how do we make sure that we don't lose it? The men who are gathered here are gathered together sitting with uh, crossed legs because over the last 2,000 years, some other uh, Jewish behavior, uh, practices have been reinstituted. And so uh, Sabbath and circumcision, you'll be pleased to know, has come back as well. Steve is here. Steve is here, you'll be pleased to know, uh, but he is sporting a rather luxurious, long and glossy beard, and his job description is quite, quite different. You don't hear him talking about mission or outreach. Instead, what you hear him talking about is how you keep this law properly. And as he stands before you, he's got a, a group of what can only be labelled purity police around him to make sure that you are all conforming. Overall, overall the atmosphere is just harsher. It's just harder. And you can smell the fear and the anxiety in the building. The doubt that there is that you are living good enough, well enough for God. And then at the end of the meeting, while well, the kids troop in, and like any good meeting, they come to sh- proudly show the adults what they have been doing in their classes. Oh, do we have a next? <laughs> so close. And uh, you admire their badly coloured in pictures of foods that we do and don't eat. Go in purity to love and keep the law. It's a pretty depressing picture, this alternate osset in 2023. But let me tell you this, this future was all too likely if Paul had lost the day in that city of Antioch some 2,000 years ago. This wasn't the only time that Paul would have this argument that he would be forcibly trying to convince people why it is so important that the Gentiles came to be included, fully incorporated as part of God's people. But what was absolutely crucial was that the, t- the leadership, so to speak, of the church at the time, the apostles together, had one common mind about this issue. If there was division on that matter, if Peter and Paul and James were all set at odds over how and who should be gathered together, then there was no way forward for the early church. If Peter and Paul could not agree on how you live, then there was no hope. And that means that everything that you know about how you gather together as God's people here in this place would have been radically reshaped as 
a consequence. Your life together, Sunday by Sunday here, is dependent upon the words that we read, this argument that was had 2,000 years ago. Because what it came down to was this, this argument. What it came down to was, was, were the people of God happy to just be a sort of small Jewish sect in which case there would have been a lot, more, a lot less pain and a lot less trouble and a lot less heartache for the early church if they were happy to settle for that? Or were they going to enter fully into something new, to become something the like of which the, the world had never seen before? This new body where everybody was welcome and invited to be a part, where there could be a new and a common humanity where all of those boundaries that have been so often put in place cease to be the defining marks of who we are. The stark reality is that if Paul had not resisted on that day, the majority of us would not be sitting in this building today. That's that's why Galatians 2 matters to us. But what did Paul know? Why, why, why was Paul able to resist with such vigour? Huh? He's on his own, isn't he? He's on his own. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is the one who has, has um, started, started to ensure that Jews and Gentiles are kept separate. Peter there, what a powerful person, somebody who walked with Jesus all of that time. Barnabas, Paul's good friend who he has lived with and worked with for such a long period of time. All of them are convinced that what they're doing is not wrong. In fact, they're convinced that it's righteous. It's a good thing that Jews and Gentiles don't sit together and eat together. So in the face of all that, What did Paul know that convinced him that what was happening here was wrong? What gave him such a deep conviction that actually this separation of meals was a perversion of the church and was far, far from God's intent for his people? How was he able to resist? That's what I want us to think about. Let's think about what Paul knows. First thing is that Paul had absolute clarity, you see, on what the law was and where it leads. Paul had absolute clarity on what the law was and where it leads. Remember, if you know the story of Paul, you'll know that before he encountered Christ, the whole of his life was about keeping the law. The whole of his life was about rehearsing the law over and over and over again, memorizing the law, allowing the law to become so much part of him that it was just an automatic part of his life and his existence. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew amongst Jews. He was a law keeper amongst law keepers. And as a Pharisee, the, the, the law and the purity of how it was observed was absolutely central to him and, how, how, and the totality of his existence. He tells us in Philippians that he was zealous for the law. He burned with devotion 
to the law. The law was this thing that absolutely captured and captivated and defined the whole of Paul's life. But what Paul had had come to see, and I think he saw this perhaps far clearer than Peter and some of the other apostles, was that that when he came to Christ, he was able to see for the first time actually the darker side that there was to the law. Because where did all of that zeal lead him at the end of the day? Where did that zeal lead him? It led to him uh, arresting, torturing, persecuting, and then murdering Christians. That's where zeal for the law had led Paul. Ultimately, zeal for the law, love for the law, had led to death. It meant relentlessly, restlessly tracking down all of those people who threatened the purity of the faith and ensuring their destruction. Now, there is some nuance that is required here. You see, all the way throughout of his, his life, or to the very end of his life, Paul always said that the law was a gift from God. In fact, in the very next chapter of Galatians, when you get to this, uh, verse 26, Paul says this. He says, the law was given by God to be a guardian and a teacher. In this limited way, Okay, Paul is still able to say that the law is a good thing. It has come from God. But what Paul also sees is what the law was not. The law was not and was never had been intended to be a way of salvation. The law was never meant to be this means of, of becoming right with God. He says that here in our passage. He says no one is made right with God by obeying the law. And what Paul saw was that when people tried to turn the law into this means of salvation, then the law becomes something that is burdensome, something that is demanding, something that is dangerous. The law, when it becomes this kind of search for becoming right with God, ultimately is not liberating. Paul, you see, had this real clarity on what the law was. The law isn't just something neutral. It's not something that you can meddle with. It may have been given by God as a good gift, but ultimately, Paul comes to this conclusion in the book of Corinthians. He says this, the law kills. The law kills. So Paul had this real clarity about what the law was, what it was good for, and why also it was not just this neutral thing. Paul understood what it was. What we also discover in this chapter and what we also discover throughout uh, Paul's life is that he actively chose against the law. Because Paul saw and understood what the law was, he had actively chosen against it. Look at verse 18. Talking of the law, he writes this. He writes, Suppose I build again what I had destroyed. Suppose I go back to the law. Suppose I build again what I had destroyed. When I was looking at those words again this week, I was thinking, that's a strange thing for Paul to say. Hasn't he made a mistake there? 
Because I think whenever I looked at it, I would, I, I think what he meant to say was, surely I build again what Christ had destroyed. Isn't that correct? Isn't it Christ who has come and said, look, you know, the law is now fulfilled, it's over, it's done with, it's not necessary. But he doesn't say that. He says, suppose I build again what I had destroyed. So personal for Paul, this issue of what the law is. This is very personal and profound, I think, for him. Turning to Christ, you see, for him has meant killing, destroying that thing that he was so zealous for. When he came to Christ, he saw with absolute clarity how powerful and intoxicating this law was. Now he's become like that reformed addict. The reformed addict that now knows, well, I just don't want to go near that at all because I, can't, I can no longer meddle or trifle with something that is so dangerous. Peter, if you remember, Peter had had a vision from God that led him to stop, uh, to, to, to stop keeping the Jewish laws and to start eating with Gentiles. Peter had had an amazing vision from God. But for Paul, something deeper and more personal had happened. Paul didn't have a vision that led to him not eating with Gentiles, but that led to him eating with Gentiles. Instead, Paul, when he came to Christ, had killed the law. He had turned from it. He had put to death that thing that was part of and defined his life. You see, Peter changed his habits, but Paul destroyed what had owned and possessed him. That's why he was able to resist. That's why he was able to argue on that day. But there's a further reason as well. You see, the thing is that Paul had, and I think this is the primary reason, is that uh, Paul had a radically different vision of what the Christian life was all about. He had a radically different vision and understanding of what the, the, the Christian life was about. And it, it reshaped everything for Paul about how he lived and what he thought ultimately his body was to be used for. For the Jewish Christians, what was life in the body about? What was your body for? Your body essentially is just this kind of canvas It's a canvas that is used to display how how obedient you are to God. You use your body as a canvas to show how devoted you are to God. So what does life in your body, what does it become about? Well, it becomes about showing that you're good at keeping the law. So your body, you, you monitor what you put into your body. You monitor your hair and what you wear, because those are the ways that you show that you are devoted to God. You you keep your body pure. You cleanse it. And you particularly cleanse it when you come into contact with anything that would defile your body. You're constantly watching your body. Ultimately, life in the body, under these laws, becomes about navel-gazing. All that you do is you're constantly taking your spiritual 
temperature. If ever you do manage to lift your eyes from yourself, you, you use them just to look around at other people to just check how you are performing. Am I doing uh, better than you, worse than you, better than you, worse than you? That's all you're thinking about. How am I doing? How, how am I doing? Am I doing better than everybody else? I hope so. Or worse? I fear not. And God, what's, where's God in all of this? Well, God is just on the, re- it's like a referee on the sidelines who's watching you and what you're doing and judging how well you're performing in your body. That's what your body is for. It doesn't perform any greater or more creative kind of role. But for Paul, coming to Christ means that he now looks at his body in a whole new light. And here we get to what is the most amazing, perhaps the most perplexing, the most uh, mysterious part of our text. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. This is what Paul says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer, but Christ lives in me. Now I live my life in my body by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and he gave himself for me. What's life in the body about for Paul? There's two parts to this. First of all, his body has somehow, see if you understand this, some way he's saying, well, my body has, has mysteriously been taken to be with Christ's body. My body is somehow caught up with Christ's body. And where is Christ's body? Christ's body is on the cross. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Been taken to be in that place of death and suffering. And I have gone to be with Christ there. And I am with him on the cross as he dies and he suffers. He's experienced death and dying somehow in some mystical kind of way. But for all all of that, no less real way too. He has died with Christ. So what he says at the end of the book of Galatians, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. In his body, he has experienced that all of those things that have been Christ-dishonoring desires have, some, have now been put to death. And, and, and as there has been this dying, there's also been this amazing experience on that cross that he has experienced, which is that the love of God has flooded his body and his very being as well. He has known what it is to be loved by God, in that place of death and suffering that he has been taken to, he has experienced love in its purest, purest form. I am loved by him. I am loved by him. Because he knows what death is and what this love is, it means that, that, that he has such freedom in his body now. Death has no fear for him. Suffering 
cannot possess him any more than the dying has already done. And he can't be shamed in his body anymore. Peter can still be shamed. That's why he goes back to eating with other people. He's shamed into it. But Paul cannot be shamed anymore because he has experienced this death. So in some way, Paul's body has been taken to be with Christ's body. But then there's this other second part as well, which is that that he has known what it is for Christ to come and inhabit his body. Christ lives in me, he says. Christ has come to take residence here in the body of Paul. And frankly, it was not an amazing body that Paul had from everything we know about it. But he knows that Christ has come and taken residence in him. That Paul's body is where Christ is now present and active. That means that his life now, his body is not all about being, displaying how successful and how good he is. What it means is that, that Christ is no referee who's just sitting over there watching like a, on the sidelines. Instead, Christ is the one who has come, who continually gives Paul life and power and counsel and help and all of the grace that he needs to live day by day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. All of his life has become a display of Christ. Paul says, and you pick up on that word, he says, now I live my life in my body by faith. Now. Now, now. This is what life in Christ is about. A Christian isn't this person who believes in their head the teachings of the Bible. A Christian is a person who has experienced this, this dying with Christ, means that their, their stiff neck has been broken, their, their, their brazen forehead has been shattered, their stony heart has been crushed. They've ta- been taken to be with Christ. And now, in their body, in their bodily existence, they know what it is to be ruled by and loved by and owned by Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is what Paul had encountered. This is what Paul knew. And this is what, what, what he, he was just so much more beautiful to him than anything else. Zeal for the law was nothing compared to this. Why would you turn back to that when you knew what it was to die and live with Christ. There was just no comparison. Let me go back again to the beginning. Because Paul argued with Peter on that day in Antioch, you are sitting here today. Because of that, you have been saved from all of that burden of religious rule-keeping. 
Unless you think that that's some sort of alternate reality, I just invite you to come uh, to, to, to where I live in Manion, where I'm surrounded daily by people who are living under the burden of religious law-keeping. We live amongst um, many, many Muslims who every day their life is lived under the burden of religious law-keeping. Okay? It could be your reality. It's not just some hypothetical thing. That could be your life here in 2023. And yet Paul won. But even as we sit here, I wonder if we have really grasped the freedom and the power of what Paul is writing about here. Because what is true for Paul is also true for us. I have been crucified with Christ I don't live any longer, but Christ lives in me. Now I live my life in my body by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself for me. So as we close, let me take you to just another parallel universe. And um, we're going to visit Osset in July 2023. Um, In this universe, not only did Paul win the day in Antioch, but the church for the next 2,000 years had sought to work out and live out the words that we've just heard of Galatians 2.20. Because, you know, Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2 is not just about looking backward in relief. What this whole passage is about is about looking upward and forward with hope. In this parallel universe, it's not just that you've been saved from religious law-keeping, but that you have been saved for the crucified life in Christ. So, who's here on this day? Well, the people that you see around you are the people you see around you now. Maybe there are others here as well. Maybe we look a little bit more diverse as a gathering here. But what you notice is that there is nobody sitting here in their Sunday best because everyone who has come feels free to come just as they are. The worship begins and there is lots of it. And you notice the authenticity with which people sing those words to great is thy faithfulness. Or my Jesus, my Saviour, or in Christ alone. And you see the people around you who are just free in worship. They're using their bodies to glorify God and they're caught up with him. And nobody or nobody else is looking around at other people. Steve is here, but he, he doesn't have the, the beard, I'm afraid. But he is standing here urging you to embrace the freedom of Christ. And he is setting Christ before you again and again. But it's not only Steve's voice that you hear. You hear the voice of many other men and women as well who are speaking about the challenges and the opportunities that they are facing as they are seeking to live for Christ day by day in the places that they live and that they work As they speak, they talk about the sacrifices that Christ has called them to. But they also talk about the liberation that they are experiencing because Christ has led them to people and places 
that they, would ne- they never thought they would go to. Some people here are looking a little bit war-torn. They're experiencing the dying. But what you also notice is that there is freedom and joy and laughter and authenticity as well. Because no one's pretending to be better than they are. And you have a sense of love that, that people here know deeply that they are loved by Christ. And then at the end of the meeting, the kids come in. And they begin to pray for the adults who are here. Because somehow these young people are experts. They know what freedom in Christ is, perhaps better than anybody else. And together you are one body living for Christ. Brothers and sisters, this does not have to be an alternate universe. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer, but Christ lives in me. Now, now I live my life in my body by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself for me. Thanks be to God. Ben, thank you so much for sharing uh, God's word with us. And uh, yes, Lord, may that that alternate uh, reality become real here. Uh, In a moment, we're going to move towards the Lord's table, uh, a time, an opportunity when we get to to taste that grace, uh, that goodness uh, of the gospel in which we, uh, we don't just allow it to be words, but those words that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me take the form of bread and wine and they show us in a a physical, tangible, visible way what that means. Uh, And just as we move towards the table, just want to uh, invite if, especially if people would appreciate prayer for anything, but just as we were uh, hearing God's word then, just a, a sense that perhaps there are some people who, who really need to know that what's true about me deep down is that Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. Uh, and if there's anyone uh, here this morning who, who needs to know that or perhaps is finding it hard to remember that, um, we would love to pray with you just that the Holy Spirit seal, seals that on your hearts and tells you that that is true for